Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. It does live for the NASDAQ market side. This is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan. Welcome, everybody. Your traders on the desk this evening are Brian Kelly, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we kick things off tonight with a major market alert. Stocks plunging as the spread of coronavirus rattles investors. The Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ all posting their biggest losses of the year by far. The Dow falling 453 points. And it was not just here in the United States. Global stocks also selling off. Every major market in Europe lost 2% or more, as did the Asian markets that were open. Remember, the China markets are closed for the Lunar New Year holiday all week, maybe longer. The economic fear is widespread across many industries and companies, casinos, cruises, airlines, tech, all falling deep into the red. So the question is this, just how much will stocks continue to pull back as this virus spreads Gaiadami? We hope it does not. If it does get worse on that front, do you expect the equity markets to also react? Yeah, and obviously we hope it gets better. I mean, it's it's pretty clear. But I'll say this. We're also attributing the sell-off today in large part to this virus. Maybe it is. Maybe that was sort of the final straw over the last however many months of things happening. But a lot of things that have been taking place have been taking place long before anybody ever heard of the coronavirus. I mean, we're going to talk about the bond market. Yields have been going lower. The gold market's been going up in a stealth way for the last six months. So a lot of these things have been in place. 20 different warning signs, metrics, all flashing red for the broader market. To your point, I guess, maybe this was sort of the final straw in this whole thing, and that's what tipped the scales. If it gets worse, yes, the equity markets continue to sell off to the downside. But, you know, a lot of things have put in place. Even if this virus, even if things get better, I'm not certain the market's going to react favorably towards so, that. I mean, to Guy's point, when before this, we were concerned about, I mean, just at the end of last year, we were concerned about a recession coming. Then the data got a little bit better. We said, you know what? trade war seems to be into some kind of truce and things started to turn up slightly so if you think this is going to continue the one question you have to ask yourself is how much of an economic shock is this let's call it slowdown in china to to let's say either us or europe and europe is probably most exposed economically to china and is that enough to kind of stop any momentum we had if you look at some of the numbers in Germany today, the IFO expectations were less than expected. So if you think there's going to be a bit of an economic shock here, then it makes sense that Europe was probably ahead of us in selling. And we did, we did carry some math on the exchange around oil. But I mean, I think you could do the same just with the numbers, right? $14 trillion economy. So $1.2 trillion per month. Let's say it slows by 25% for two months. You've effectively now got $500 billion, if my math is right, that just is taken out. Divide that by the number. I mean, there is a way to sort of come at this mathematically, I think. That makes sense. You have to make some assumptions on how long it lasts and how pervasive it is. But to me, the second level question is, how much will the market look through it? and say, you know what, we don't really focus on this quarter's earnings. Let's talk about the business going forward. Is it really going to be substantially changed? So I think not for a lot of these businesses. So, you know, I don't, uh, for example, Alibaba, which I've wanted to own for a while, missed it. It went 
just straight through 200 on its way to 231. This morning it opened below 200. So I didn't buy it right at the bottom, but I bought some today. I would like to own more. I bought some Yum China last week. That obviously today wasn't great. But I think that people will look through those earnings and ultimately it won't Did matter. you buy more Yum China today? I didn't. I bought Alibaba today, you know, just sort of spreading around. But I, I really think that this will, in, in short order, will not be uh, the biggest threat that it seems to be right now. And also, I agree with Guy, we're looking for any reason to sell off. The, the run we had was just... Parabolic. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think obviously it's pretty unquantifiable to know when the fears about this will end. You know, right now, if you look at the amount of deaths and, and how it's spreading, it seems like pretty small numbers. And if it doubled in a week, would that be a lot? If it doubled in two weeks, would that be? A, we just don't know. And I think the disruption to the supply chain is really important. And a lot of the sales, if you're just talking about Chinese consumption, they might not get back for especially a lot of U.S. multinationals who do a lot of business in China, whether it be retailers or, um, you know, uh, restaurants, that sort of thing. So to me, it, what, what I find most interesting about this is that of all the places that this could have happened, China is probably the worst place for the global economy. If you think about the way that their economy is slowing right now and the implications that it has on the rest of the world. BK just mentioned right off the bat. I mean, Europe, we know, you know people keep talking about these green shoots. They're not green shoots. I mean, the economic data is at best stabilizing, and that comes after a period of massive, you know, easy money just again in this mid-cycle adjustment or whatever these central bankers want to call it. So it's unquantifiable. I just say this, is that the S&P 500 about two and a half months ago was at 3000 and a week ago it was at 3300 That was an awful lot of price appreciation for not a whole heck of a lot of news. And if you're going to attribute it to the back end of the Fed easing and then the, the truce and the, and the trade war, I would tell you that the unknowable about this situation, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, is the sort of thing that neutralizes any of the benefits that we've gotten over the last couple of months. So to me, when I think about it is, we went up 10% in almost a straight line in the last few months. Could we come back to support an S&P 500 at 3,000? I'd say yes. And if you're one of these strategists who has a 3,500 year-end target, that might be your best scenario to end the year at 3,500. Okay, a lot to, lot to unpack there. Let's take some of that out, a lot of good ideas, and sort of put it into separate boxes. Let's start off with just the macro economy guy, because um, let's just take the world. The world is four economies, roughly. I'm being very rough here, okay? You got the U.S., China, the Eurozone, and then pretty much everybody else mm-hmm. combined. There, there are four that are semi-equal. China is roughly a third of all luxury goods purchases in the world. The second biggest consumer of oil in the world behind the United States, the biggest importer. If they slow down for 30% for three or four months, like they did with SARS, and those are the numbers that we had then, will that hurt the rest of the world? I think it has to. I mean, I, we're, not, we're not insulated from those things. I mean, I, it abs- the answer is yes, it will hurt. And coming back to the United States with an economy that's 73% driven by people buying things, and God, you don't want this to happen, but you know, if you start seeing more and more people in the middle of Times Square with face masks on, people are going to start to question, maybe I shouldn't go out to eat on Saturday night. Maybe I shouldn't walk into that Starbucks. And don't think that doesn't happen. Consumer behavior in this country changes on a dime. And if people start to get scared, you see how quickly spending will slow down, yeah, which is one of the reasons, quickly, the, the politicians are so quick to so, try to assuage the fears of people, and they have no idea. I'm not suggesting I know, but I'm smart enough to say that I don't know. Don't go out on TV and say, you know, we have it contained. They have no idea if it's contained or not. Yeah, and somebody at BK equated this effectively, and it's, again, a rough sort of analogy, which is this is Lunar New Year. This is their big holiday. This is big spending, big restaurants, a lot of gift giving. It's supposed to be a happy time. They've effectively shut down 
many cities from participating in any kind of thing. It's if you want to shut down 11 Chicago's during Christmas week. Right. Right. And so that's that's the again to the unknown. What economic impact does it have not just on China, but for the rest of the world? There is some kind of economic shock here. And that's what the market's trying to price in. That's what the stock market's trying to price in. That's what the bond market's trying to price in. But to Guy's point, what's interesting about the masks in Times Square, I went out to lunch today. I'm in Midtown Manhattan. Trillions of dollars are moving around. People are selling off. Yet nobody in Midtown Manhattan seemed to have a problem. No, no masks in Midtown. No worries. So that tells me that investors aren't pricing in the worst-case scenario here, which is probably a good thing. Okay. Let's bring in a guest here, Bob Michael. Bob Michael joining us now on set, talking about uh, maybe this flight to safety that we have had. Um, Bob, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Dan made a great point sort of at the end of his previous comment, which is, is the Fed out of gas here? That, that's part of the, I think that's where you're going, which is that, that we talked about the Fed making all these easing moves, and if something were to happen, they would be effectively powerless. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of where you're going, I think, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, they called it a mid-cycle adjustment, but a lot of people who were skeptical at, at the time were saying, wait, do we really need this now? Don't we want to save the powder for some sort of event we can't foresee? So the the Fed has two-thirds of the gas left in the tank. They cut rates three times. They could potentially do six more 25 basis point cuts. We've seen that it helps. We saw with just the three rate cuts what happened to mortgage refis and the confidence to the consumer. So it does work. They have plenty of firepower. They also have their balance sheet. Right now, they're just maintaining it. We can debate what the front-end liquidity injections are doing, but they could go back to expanding their balance sheet. There's a lot they can do. Wait, but, but it affected risk assets over the last four months or five months since they really started expanding their balance sheet and cutting their interest rates. But with Q4, GDP is tracking below 2%. So what, what did it do other than just kind of do what it's always done is just inflate risk assets? Well, that may have been one of the things that it did. But there's no doubt when you look at the mortgage market, refinancings are up a lot. And that put cash into consumers' pockets. And when you look at a lot of the economic activity, it was centered around the consumer. So I can draw a hard line from Fed rate cuts to the consumer to spending. And they've got some powder left. Well, it's not just been here, obviously. As you know, you're the global head of fixed income. I mean, is it the central banks around the world? What is it, you know, 90 total cuts or something like this? Absolutely. We totaled it up, and it's staggering. Everyone talks about the three Fed cuts for 75 basis points. There have been close to 60 central banks that have cut rates 90 times for over 9,000 basis points. So they've literally flooded the global economy with money. And a lot of them have gone back to expanding and maintaining their balance sheet. So, so Bob, I'm curious, we were talking about kind of the economic impact here. What, what's going on in the fixed income markets? Well, you talked about those, those interest rate cuts. You get zero yield in Europe. You get zero yield in Japan, the largest. So does that mean just everybody has to flood into the bond market and we should all buy TLT? So it, it's interesting. In the last week, sentiment in the bond market's gone 180 degrees. Everyone around the world was looking for a rally to get out of bonds, thinking with compromise on the trade front, you see some startup of economic activity. Now everyone's thinking about getting back in. It's the safe haven. And as we start to see that play out, and I'm not saying everyone's gotten in yet. I think there's a lot of discussion. People are waiting to see how things play out. It's the money 
overseas in the negative yielding bond markets that is eyeing the U.S. bond market like a dog looking at a bone and just coming right in. Let me ask, so today's move, um, is that all flight to quality? What do you, do you yeah, think that I, I think with, if we see a coronavirus sort of tempering? And, and I think what's important here, it's the early stages of flight to quality. It's probably a lot more of unwinding of some of the short positions that have been put in since the, the phase one trade deal um, had been agreed to. I think there's still big money to come into the bond market. There are still central banks that are expanding their balance sheet. I think we could easily do another 20, 25 basis points here. That brings you to about one. Th- 0.35 to 1.4 percent on the 10-year, not too far away from the bottom half of the Fed's range, which is one and a half percent. I think for it to go lower than that, you would need an indication that the Fed would have to cut rates in here. So at what cost? At what future cost? I mean, because to me, this is all madness. And I might be the, an outlier here, but I mean, they're setting this up globally for some catastrophic event. I mean, I don't know what the, I mean, this is the greatest economy in the history of mankind. I read about it all the time and I hear about it, yet we're doing emergency measures. And what's the emergency? So I I don't really know what the game of the Federal Reserve is and central banks globally, but at what cost are they doing all this nonsense? I used to be you. I used to sit (laughs) there. Sorry to hear that. (laughs) I used to sit there and go, stop the madness. This is crazy. And then the Fed spent three years, 2015 to 18, raising rates and starting to run down its balance sheet. What happened to asset prices other than than government bonds? Equities continue to go up. Privates went up. And they found a way to do it. So the central banks have found a recipe where they can provide emergency stimulus and then they can begin to work it out when the economy is strong enough to absorb it. So, Bob, as an extension of that question a little bit, you know, last summer when the 210 yield inverted, right, and we we had basically a matched low of the 2016 low in the 10-year Treasury down there at 140 or something like that, you know, there was a lot of fears about recession. So you just said under certain circumstances you could see a retest of that 2016 low. What happens if they break it, right? What happens if that yield curve gets inverted? We're that much further along where everybody's strategists and economists were saying that it's a 100% indicator when it inverts 18 to 24 months out, we get a recession. What's your view if that happens sooner than later? So that's a great point. The Fed didn't start cutting rates until later in July of last year. So the curve was inverted for a while. These 90 or so central bank cuts, they were back and loaded, and they were responding to what they felt was a manufacturing recession globally could ripple through to the consumer side. And then you had a phase one trade deal. I think they're eyeing what's going on with the coronavirus. If it does take a lot out of global GDP, they'll respond and they'll see how far they go. I know it's really, I'm sure you've been in contact with your colleagues in Asia or at least that part of the world. Absolutely. What are the chances that in reaction to this, there will be a day when this does come to an end? that the Chinese government, which is known for using the iron fist as much as the velvet glove, will flood its own market with liquidity, will bring in its own bigger form of stimulus. They're already kind of doing one right now. In other words, does the Chinese government and its central bank have the financial firepower to counter or even overshoot the negative economic impacts of this? To some extent, yes. I think they've learned from 2003 and SARS. You're already seeing it with the faster, more deliberate response, with the immediate quarantining, the sharing of information, uh, the transparency. I think you can 
project that onto the capital markets and say they would inject more liquidity to try to stabilize things here, and they have the ability to do it. Maybe it's a matter of time. Maybe it will ultimately, they'll push that system up. Bob Michael, head of global fixed income at J.P. Morgan. Bob, thank you very much thank for joining you. us. You know, it's interesting, too, Guy, because we talk about SARS. We don't, it's really the only sort of China-based historical context that we have. But let's be clear, in 2003... Chinese economy was smaller than that of the state of New York, 1.6 trillion in GDP. It's 14 trillion now. Yeah. It's a whole different animal. And Dan Nathan made that point on our 12:30 call, which we have each day. I mean, it's it's an it's a it's an excellent point. And the markets were in a much different place at that time. I don't think there's any way you can draw conclusions based on what happened 17 years ago. I mean, we can try, but I don't know what the point is. And I'll, again, I'll push back quickly. We we fear rece- every central banker says, you know, we're trying to avoid recessions. Why? You know, why try to avoid recessions? They're a natural part of the business cycle. It's like just allow it to happen and it won't be 10 times as bad five years from now. It's painful, it's, it's, but it's necessary, and it allows good companies to flourish and bad companies to get out of the way. It's corporate Darwinism, and for some reason we're not allowing it to happen, and Federal Reserve is square one the culprit in this, my opinion. Thank you, Guy Adami. You're welcome. A future Bob Michael. All right, so much left to do on this busy hour. Up next, panic buying. One biotech soaring on, on just the hint that it's going to go after a vaccine for the virus. We're going to dig in on that big move. And later on, the other big story front and center for your money. Uh, this week's earnings will factor into a newly uncertain macro environment. As always, live from the NASDAQ Times Square in New York City. And we're back right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Right, welcome back. Well, the virus fear is certainly not the only major news story today. President Trump's impeachment trial continuing in the Senate, and all the attention seems to be falling on a book by one Mr. John Bolton. Elon Moy is live for us on Capitol Hill with more on how today went. Elon. Well, Brian, the New York Times is reporting that John Bolton's forthcoming book will detail direct conversations with President Trump over withholding that aid to Ukraine in exchange for investigations into his political rivals. So that would mean that John Bolton would have firsthand eyewitness knowledge of the allegations that are directly at the heart of the impeachment trial allegations, which we should say that President Trump denies. But Bolton has said that he is willing to testify. So the question that's hanging over Capitol Hill today is, will the Senate call him to do that? We know that Mitt Romney is a yes. 
I think it's uh, increasingly likely uh, that other Republicans will uh, will join those of us who think we should hear from John Bolton. And whether uh, there are other witnesses and documents, well, that's another matter. But I think uh, John Bolton's relevance to our decision has become has become increasingly clear. So one of the senators joining him appears to be Susan Collins, who issued a statement saying that the book strengthens the case for witnesses and prompted discussions among her colleagues. Now, the White House does seem to be preparing for the event of John Bolton being called to testify. Already today, the White House has tried to uh, argue that Democrats are too dismissive about the power of executive privilege. To treat the separation of powers and constitutional privileges as if they're asbestos in the ceiling tiles. You can't touch them. The White House has also spent much of the past hour raising questions about Hunter Biden, Brian. So clearly Republicans want to hear from him as well. Back over to you. Our dramatic day as well, Elon. We're glad you're there for us. Thank you very much. Question of this, guys. Is the impeachment having any real impact on the market? Or do you think that really today is all either about perhaps the, the virus or just an excuse to sell, Karen? Where does the impeachment, if, if anywhere matter from an equities perspective? I don't think that was really what was happening today. I think that there was just talking about before coronavirus and just an excuse because the market had gone straight up. Now, maybe if we get to a day from now and you have four or more who vote to have witnesses, maybe it goes up a little. But I still think that the chance of acquittal is very high. Very and BK, high. again, BK, and, and, you know, from the CNBC lane, just from a market perspective, it was also, I'm sure you heard, a small chattering that said maybe it's because Sanders' polling numbers I think soar, seem to soar over the weekend. Yes. And today may have also been a reaction to that. I, I'm, I think that's the bigger, if we're looking at it just from what are the political risks out there, on predicted, Bernie Sanders in October was at a 10 he went to 41 over the weekend to get the presidential nomination. The market, the stock market, has not priced in the fact that Bernie Sanders may be the Democratic nominee. So wh whether you like it or not, that's the reality of it. And I think the impeachment is probably on the back burner in terms of political risk, but a Bernie Sanders Democratic nomination is not priced into this market. Yeah, but I don't think it had anything to do with that. And I think that if anything, ultimately, when any of this stuff about impeachment hits the market, it's going to be you know pushing off infrastructure week again, or maybe tax cuts 2.0. I mean, those are the sorts of things that I think will have an impact on the market sentiment. Is, there, is it just quickly, because your risk mitigation, Dan, is kind of your thing. Is it yeah. smart just for our viewers to just buy some puts and just hang it out you there? You know, there's been a lot of talk of people kind of timing this summer when you might get a Democratic nominee and then the election. Or I mean, coronavirus, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, it, it's just one of those things where, you know, 2019, you had this 29 percent uh, move in the, in the stock market higher with not a sell off of greater than seven and a half percent. There was only three sell offs um, in total. And so I don't think there was a lot of risk going into this year, at least perceived risk. And then all of a sudden, you know, it feels bad, but yet we're still up on the year. You know, we're still up 30 percent year over year. So at the end of the day, I think you want to be tactical about buying puts. Put spuds. Karen's really good at it doing, um, you know, her portfolio. I'm selling them today. Well, you're, buying so them. you're closing out some yes, of the positions that you already positions. had that were hedges, that sort of thing. And that's the way a lot of traders like to do that. But I think what you're talking about is specifically lining up against the Democratic convention and then the general. Yeah, if you don't want to sell stocks, maybe just some way to get that protection. Yeah, and I think you'd be opportunistic about it. Yeah. All right. As always, you can get live updates on the impeachment trial at CNBC.com. We've got much more ahead on Fast Money, specifically this. Stocks tumble as the deadly Wuhan virus spreads. Where can you seek safety in the sell-off? And later... 
we're about to kick off a mega week for earnings. Coming up, the five key names that need to be on your radar. Stick with us. Fast Money is back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, the market selling off as fears over the deadly coronavirus continue to grip investors in China and around the world. Today's big drop, the Dow falling 453 points, comes when we kick off the busiest week of earnings season so far. 134 S&P 500 companies are set to release their numbers this week. But Carter Worth is here, and he says there are five names mm. that you really need to focus on in the coming days. Cornerstone Macros, Carter Worth, over at the Plasma to break it all down. Carter. Well, we all know big is more important than small, and guess what? The market is so dominated, and everybody knows this, by the top names. And four of them report this week, Google uh, next Monday. So in the next five business sessions, the five biggest stocks representing, as you can see here, 18.4% of the S&P, and more importantly, one-half of the Nasdaq 100. Top five, 50%. So so much hinges on these performing, and uh, it's steep and uncorrected couple uh, charts. Now, the two panel doesn't show this well. We'll zero in later. But this is a, a longer term chart, five, six, seven years of the Nasdaq 100. And the bottom panel calculates for us what percentage we are above or below the 150 day moving average. And what you're going to see here is that exactly two years ago, this is the two year anniversary of the January 26, 2018 spike. We got to exactly 15 per stop and stop dead cold. Let's zero in on this and make it a little tighter. Here it is. This is the spike in January of 2018, and here we are now, and we literally got to 15% above and stopped dead cold. This, of course, turned down just like that. And so, so much hinges on these names, and my hunch is, is they're just, um, either way, we're putting in an intermediate top, whether they're all blowout or whether they all miss. And we can talk about that in a bit. But here is the setup for the S&P. It's fantastic. Just a normal garden variety give back in the event that this is an unhappy result for these companies would suggest a pivot back to the point from which you broke out. That's a 7.7% decline. We're, of course, already down three. Done half of that. For the Nasdaq 100, a higher beta and higher flying, the exact same setup, the breakout from the ascending wedge, and a pivot back to the breakout juncture, which happens quite often, would be an 11% sell-off. I think that's the kind of thing one should be anticipating in the event of very good news or, frankly, very good bad news. All right, Carter, why don't you come on over, guys? Let's trade this. I saw Karen Feynman. You were furiously scribbling notes down. Your take on Carter's five to, to focus on. 
So I'm curious, Top though. Five five. I mean, it's interesting. The 15% is very interesting. So you, does it matter that Apple, which was, is already down from, I don't know what, 323 down to 310? 3%? What is it? Two, three? What's the peak to trough? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something, but it's not a ton. But does it. Do you think they're all going to move together regardless so, of earnings? So if you look at the implied move of all five, it's, uh, it's about 4.1% on earnings. And they all have earnings coming up in the next five sessions. Let's say they all do the maximum implied move up or they all do the maximum implied move down. A thoughtful case can be made that regardless of that, either way we get a peak. Because let's say they're all fantastic and they do what Intel did and what Citrix did and what Morgan Stanley did. Guess what that is? That would be a blow-off. We'd be the steep move from October and yet further extended. And that's how runs end. Or let's say they all miss the market slumps in response. Meaning a case can be made that regardless of what happens, we're going to put in a top or are putting in a top independent of flus and viruses and force majeures that you cannot analyze. But it was coming anyway. Well, the flu? Oh, that, no, 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 the, no, yeah, well, no. the flu maybe Hopefully too. Not. <laughs> Hopefully not. But yes, that the market, well, think about it this way. On October 3rd, before this whole thing took off, and you guys were speaking about this, right, the market on a trailing 12 month basis was unchanged. S&P was unchanged. But from October 3rd until this just recent sell-off in January, the, the S&P was up 16%, annualizing at 50%. The NASDAQ is up 75% annualized. It was too much. And so I'm making the case that regardless of what they say, let's say they're all fantastic, that would be the culmination, or they're all poor, and obviously it'll be some blended. The market doesn't go either. So, what is the narrative to take you higher after having just pushed this high already? Real quick, I mean, I'd say this. I don't know how you feel about. It's not about the company Amazon, but I would submit this quarter, this release on Thursday is extraordinarily important. You have huge double tops from the summer of 2018 around 2020, last summer around 2020. The stock has recovered off last earnings, but not that much. It's really seems sort of round, you know, failing here. Is this quarter important for the stock, Amazon? 100%. And it's tied to uh, the weakest space, right? We know tech is good. Google is tech, essentially. Apple, Microsoft. I mean, Amazon is the one that struggled, and Amazon will need to put up the best number, I think, of the bunch. All right, Carter Worth, interesting stuff there. Big week for earnings, 134 companies. Carter, thank you. All right, still ahead. Did investors panic buy on one biotech that says it will work on a vaccine for the coronavirus? Shares up 24% today. A name ahead. Later on, how the virus is having a big impact on big oil. Why that may be very bad news for investors. Maybe the state of Texas. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. The Dow falling 454 points today. The NASDAQ, it lost 2%. But biotechs held up a little better than much of the market. Some fell, but a few seem to be getting a lot of interest because of their connection or their discussion of a connection to the coronavirus. Let's get now back to Meg Terrell back at CMBTHQ with more on another busy day in pharma and biotech. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, biotech overall, as you said, may have been down today. But take a look at some of these stocks that closed the day in the green. Johnson & Johnson, AbbVie, Gilead Sciences, Moderna, and Veer Biotechnology. Now, what they all have in common? They're all working in some way on potentially tackling the coronavirus. The exception in that group is Regeneron, which is working on a potential drug, but it closed down today about 1.7%. Now, these aren't the smaller micro-cap names that are often so dangerously volatile in outbreak headlines, though healthcare analysts do warn that some of these moves may be exaggerated. But Johnson & Johnson, for example, of course, is the world's largest healthcare company, and it has experience 
experience developing vaccines in outbreak situations. We spoke this morning with its chief scientific officer, Dr. Paul Stoffels, about that previous work and what it suggests for this time around. We have done this uh, in Ebola in six months from having a construct virus to uh, scaling it up and bringing it to humans. With Zika, we have done it in 12 months where we did not have the virus and we had to start from scratch. Here we are in the same situation as Zika. We have to start from a sequence which we now know. So J&J is also looking into whether its approved drugs for HIV may be helpful against the novel coronavirus, while AbbVie says it's donated supplies of its HIV medicines at China's request. Smaller biotechs are also in the hunt. This morning, we visited the labs of Moderna, which is working with the NIH on a potential vaccine. Together, they've selected the protein on the virus for the vaccine to target, and Moderna is now working to produce enough to supply the NIH to run a phase one human clinical trial. We've been working around the clock for a couple of weeks, uh, through weekends and through nights, to get that batch manufactured. Hoping to do that, Brian, within a few months to get it into humans. Back over to you. Uh, Meg, I want to ask you a follow-up. We talked about a little bit on the exchange earlier today. Veer Therapeutics, a biotech, not, it's a small cap, it's not tiny, it's two-plus billion market cap. The stock soared over 20% today merely because they said they're, they're beginning to investigate whether they're going to be able to investigate some kind of an antidote. Right. So this is Veer Biotechnology. uh, And they're not one of those micro cap names that you often see on outbreak headlines. This is a relatively young company. It was founded by respected venture capitalists in the biotech space who have long track records and who are very credible. The CEO is George Skangos, former CEO of Biogen. So while they are a smaller company, uh, there is belief in what they say in that they are looking into their pipeline uh, and looking into their library of monoclonal antibodies to see if any of them might have activity against this novel coronavirus. Um, I don't think, judging by their press release, they're making any outsized claims. But what is outsized, of course, is the reaction uh, in the marketplace. They made their announcement that they were looking into this last week on the 22nd. The stock jumped 20 percent today. That shows you something about how people in the market are trading around this information. Meg Terrell, Meg Terrell back at CBC HQ. Thank you very much. And by the way, what Meg was referring to is, is, and there are companies that are out there, they got 40 and $50 million market caps. We could never talk about them. I'll never mention their names. But they're up 80, 90. One rose 200% today. Traders are jumping. You got to be careful out there. Careful long and short, because it could be up another day. Right. It's dangerous. It's interesting. Real quick, J&J reported on January 23rd. It was a solid quarter. Its stock trades at a discount to its peers without question. There's no denying that. But go back and look. The high the stock made January 2018, oddly enough, was right around this 149 level. And the stock has had a big run to the upside. I think you got to take profits in J&J rather than try to play the breakout here. Oh, yeah, we had the head of, I think it was basically the head of infectious diseases at J&J today, saying they're going to try to upscale was his term, sort of rush this through maybe six months and get something done. All right, let's turn now from biotech to energy. Crude oil unable to escape growing fears over the coronavirus outbreak as well. But investors who have been in the market long enough might be having a bit of deja vu about crude's big move lower. Look at what happened to crude when SARS hit back in 2003. It went from about 28 a barrel in February to about 25 and change in early May, a drop of about 30 percent. That was on concern over a slowdown in the global economy because of SARS and the need for less oil because of that. Of course, oil then went on a five-year run to $145 a barrel. But let's fast forward to today, because people are using that 2003 outbreak as a reference point for what may happen with oil now. 
Oil seems to be following the same path. It's already down 13% this year. So this is a two-year chart of oil. That was 2003 we just showed you. This is the last two years. You can see the big drop far right of your screen the last two weeks. Oil was already weakening before the virus hit. But take a look at that $50 mark. This is why I should be over there. I want to draw a Carter Worth-like line at 50 That level has been tested and held three times in the past year. The idea, guys, watch 50, but also keep in mind 2003, as Dan noted, was a very different time in the economy, much larger now. Oil, by the way, was six, five and a half to six million barrels a day at China. Now it's 14 million barrels. You know, know, it's funny. You're using oil like that, and I think it makes totally sense. But, like, look at utilities. It's the best performing sector in the the U.S. stock markets, up 6% of the year. That literally gone straight up this year. So oil's been going down. Yields have been going down. I don't think, going back to what we were talking about at the top of the show, it's the coronavirus is what's being caused, you know, like we're saying is, is... the, the cause of this, this was already happening. Like this is already so. Maybe it's just a reference on global growth. Maybe all this stuff about you know supposedly we're going to 2020 was going to be the year of liftoff. Maybe it was never happening. And maybe these risk assets are telling us. I that. mean, oil peaked the day that uh, Iran did their retaliation bombing. Oil gapped higher and then immediately closed lower and hasn't looked back. So this was well before any coronavirus. Oil, uh, crude Brent, or I'm sorry, uh, WTI was at $66. I mean, this is a big move down in the last couple weeks, well before the virus and, came well, out. And about, before all this virus stuff came out, about three weeks ago, we, we ran through the numbers on the air. And again, it was just, there's about a million more barrels of oil in the world than there are necessary. What's interesting about this move in oil, guys, is remember that Libya is effectively gone. 800,000 to a million barrels a day is offline because they've got a fight and this warlord sort of controlling the pipes. Even with Libya offline, oil continues to fall because if China's economy slows by 20%, 45% of their oil is used for transportation, about 6 million barrels a day. You lose 30 to 40% of that for a month or two? China's already got a billion barrels in storage. And by the way, these stocks, the Continentals, I'm not picking anybody in particular, Oasis, Chesapeake Energy, heavily indebted. These stocks are falling 30 percent in two days, in, in two weeks. Do you recall what was the U.S. oil production back in the SARS? Oh, God, I would say I mean, I'm going to give put me on the spot but, here. But, but, but Sully, four million barrels a day. Sully, why don't you say, now Sully, why don't you say it doesn't matter because they didn't quarantine 50 million people in one yeah, week? Yeah, Karen, it doesn't matter. Well, because because they they didn't, I mean, you'd be nasty. To okay, no, but, but my point is, it's like you're not getting those purchases back. The activity is not going to happen. Right. So right. like that's the, the risk of the blip in Q1 2020. That's going to be the story when we're looking back. Why GDP yeah, has this. Alternatively, we're talking about low interest interest rate and low oil for the U.S. consumer, that's fantastic. Yeah, there, and again, true, but there were reports that OPEC might step in to try to do something in the interim here. Remember, 50, 58 Brent, I can assure you from personal conversations being at OPEC, what, five or six? They, they don't want that. That's not good for them, 58. So watch for potential further OPEC cuts and watch the shares of these dead heavy oil and gas. Even if you don't care about fossil fuels, you own an ETF. Take a look at what's inside it and watch for some of those names. All right, still ahead. Former Nissan executive Carlos Ghosn going on the record. What the fugitive CEO said about his dramatic escape from Japan, you could not miss. Plus, we're counting down to Apple earnings. Big numbers out of Cupertino be able to turn this market around? Stick with us. Back in two. Well, the world's most famous CEO turned fugitive going on the record with CNBC. Carlos Ghosn sitting down for a rare interview with Phil LeBeau. And tonight, 
You're going to hear new details from Ghosn about his spectacular escape from Japan and how he felt throughout his journey. Istanbul is a city that lies across two continents, Europe on the west and Asia to the east. Once the heart of the Byzantine and Ottoman empires, it's long been the connection between the Black Sea and the rest of the Mediterranean. Here, Carlos Ghosn reportedly will connect to his final destination, Beirut. According to this flight tracker for that night, the Bombardier Global Express jet flies across Russian airspace. The plane lands at Ataturk Airport in the pre-dawn hours of December 30th. On your flight out of Japan, was there ever a point where you took a deep breath and you said, okay, I am free. I'm not to Lebanon yet, but I'm free. I'm no longer in Japan or in Japanese airspace. I took a deep breath when I arrived in Beirut, not a moment before. Even when you got to Istanbul? Not a moment before. You're going to hear more from Carlos Ghosn during our new CNBC original documentary, Fugitive CEO, The Carlos Ghosn Story, premiering tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Right up next, gearing up for Apple. Their number's out tomorrow after the bell, and we'll tell you how option traders are setting up for the print. We are live, as always, at the NASDAQ and Times Square. We're back up this. Well, Apple shares taking a hit today along with the broader market. The move lower comes as it preps to release results after tomorrow's close. Apple fell about 3% today. Let's get right now to Josh Lipton out in San Francisco with more on what investors will be looking for inside of those Apple numbers. How are you doing, Josh? So, Brian, here's what the street expects from Apple. Q1 EPS of 455 on revenue of 88.5 billion. That suggests a top line increase of 5%. Of course, Apple has surged nearly 100% in the past 12 months. That's on excitement about an expected 5G iPhone, increasing confidence in that higher margin services segment, as well as recent strong growth in wearables. But today, as you mentioned, Apple slipping into the red. There is concern about China's viral outbreak. What does the coronavirus mean for Apple? How could it dent demand? Remember, China does account for an estimated 17% of sales. Also, China is a key link in the company's supply chain. Analysts at Evercore note that two of Apple's supplier sites are in Wuhan, considered the epicenter of the virus, but they think Apple will be able to shift production to other unaffected sites. All of this coming as Apple has actually been showing improvement in China. Remember, last quarter, Greater China revenue fell just 2%. Brian, back to you. All right, Josh Lipton, thank you very much. Apple, Guy Dami, what are you yeah, going to be looking for? I mean, listen, I, I, we for a long time we said doing the math, Apple's going to earn about $15. You give it a market multiple, about 18 and a half, you get a $280 stock roundabout. And that's where it got to. Obviously, it's overshot to the upside. Karen made the point earlier, traded north of 320. I mean, I think a benign quarter, an inline quarter, given this tape, given this environment, I don't think seeing it back to 280 is crazy. That's not saying I'm some crazy Apple bear. I'm not. But this stock has actually been an excellent trading stock over the last couple of years. And Dan can outline that. But you've seen moves of this magnitude a number of times to the downside. And, and in no way, BK, am I minimizing last quarter. All numbers matter. But when you're dealing with what we're dealing with now, they have 42 stores in China, obviously a huge millions of iPhone sales. 
Does it take away a little bit from these numbers? Uh, no. I mean, listen, everybody, we've sat here for months and people have been telling me, hey, you know what? Apple is a services story at this point in time. It's no longer a hardware company. So if you bought the stock believing that, then this shouldn't matter whatsoever. You're buying it because the services revenue are going to become a bigger part of what they're doing. Now, I mean, I'm not sure I buy into that. The second problem you have here is, you know, Josh talked about the 5G anticipation. Well, that's already in the stock. So you need to tell me what's going to be the catalyst. What are they going to say on the call tomorrow that's going to say, hey, this is new information that I don't know about that's going to cause me to buy this stock up 100% over the last year? Yeah, I'll just make one point. So the Q4 2018, when I think uh, revenues in China for Apple were down 30%, okay? So that was a year ago. The stock traded, what, below 140. So here we are. We got to 320. if this doesn't cause the company to give cautious guidance almost a year in front of this 5G launch, the reason why the stock was up supposedly 100% last year, a year that revenues and earnings per share did not grow, and the multiple went from 14 times to 24 times, then I'd be very, very surprised. So to me, I think like as it overshot to the upside, it likely maybe gets back to guys 280 point where you slap a reasonable multiple on it, and then you say, let's set up for that 5G ramp at the end of the year. Okay, good stuff there. Uh, And tomorrow night, again, Apple. And let's stick with Apple, because one options trader is betting today's pullback could be the ticket to more gains when they do report. That is Mike Coe. He is also in San Francisco, and he has got your options action. Mike, what are you seeing on Apple? Yeah, so Apple is always one of the most active single stock options in the marketplace, if not the most active. And we saw calls outpace puts by about one and a half to one today. Right now, the options market is implying that Apple is going to move about five and a half percent by the end of the week. And that is a bigger move than the 4.6 percent or so that it has averaged over the last eight quarters. And I think some of what we saw in the marketplace today may help explain that. Where we saw a lot of the activity was in the weekly 320 calls and the 325 calls. Specifically, the trade that I saw was a purchase of the 320, 325 call spread for $1.65. That's betting a half a percent of the stock price that it could rise up to that 325 level by the end of the week. All right, Mike, Mike Coe, thank you very much. And remember, folks, for more options action, you can always tune into the full show Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next are your final trades. All right, time for your final trades. Go around the horn. Kick it off, PK. So on days like today, sometimes it's good to take a step back and say what has been working in this market, regardless of this news. Miners have been doing well. Junior gold miners, GDXJ. Karen. Yeah, Target hung in very well today. I think it's washed out from that earnings miss a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, XLU, I am a seller. I'm swimming in BK's pool right now with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. I like that. They see that? CME. All right, guys, good stuff there. Big day. Got to watch Shin the Night. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. We'll see you tomorrow night. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.